Welcome to Season 5 of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast with Adina, Brian, Chris, and Steve, the biggest sci-fi podcast in the galaxy. The adventure is just beginning here at the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, and we invite you to come aboard the Starship Tangent. We know you'll enjoy the conversation, the laughter, the banner back and forth, and most of all, friends who love hanging out to talk about all things science fiction. Set your phasers to fun. Here we go. Welcome to the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, the biggest and most fun podcast in the galaxy. My name is Brian Donahue, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Adina, Chris, and Steve. Today's episode is a special one because we have a very special guest with us today. He's a beloved actor who played a beloved character in one of our most beloved series in Star Trek franchise, Deep Space Nine. His name is Armin Shimmerman, known best for playing Quark, one of the greatest characters in Trek history, if you ask me. And I'm not just saying that because he's, we, we he's you. sitting right uh, He's also well known for playing Principal Snyder and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Not only that. He's also a prolific and talented writer, having penned the Illyria series and the Merchant Prince series. He's worked on stage and screen alike. He's also a passionate activist, fundraiser for such organizations as Doctors Without Borders and PanCan. On top of all of that, he's a professor of Shakespeare at University of Southern California. He is also I helping. Was. I was. He was. Okay. I was. Well, still oh. interesting. I didn't know that until recently. It's still fascinating. He is also helping to promote fanfare signatures, an exciting new way for fans to purchase autographs for their favorite Trek actors and celebrities. We're going to talk about that in just mm-hmm. a minute. And uh, he's married to the talented and beautiful Kitty Swink. You could say that our guest is one of the luckiest guys on the planet, actually. So you could say that he'd be right. (laughs) (laughs) Please welcome Mr. Armin Sherman. Thank you, sir, for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for that beloved introduction. You're welcome. Uh, So uh, should we just go ahead and kick it off with fanfare? This is fascinating. Um, and let's, let's hear, let the people hear about this and get involved and see what, what they think about this. Sure. Um, one of the reasons I'm here is I'm a contributor to something called Fanfare Signatures, which is, uh, an organization and not an organization, but a company started by John Delancey's son, Owen Delancey and his wife, Owen's wife, Emily. And, uh, what it does, it started out of, um, out of COVID, uh, conventions were canceled. People couldn't get their signatures and autographs that they wanted. And Owen and Emily came up with a brilliant idea to provide rich artwork with signatures of actors uh, with uh, comments that the that the people who are buying the artwork want on there. So they're individualized mm-hmm. um, and each for each person. And I thought it was a great idea, and I've been doing it now for, I believe, for about two years. This is a company that is growing by leaps and bounds. They've just signed the uh, NFL football team. Uh, They've got other celebrities besides Star Trek uh, celebrities, and um, I'm I'm very proud of them and uh, just amazed at what they've been able to do. Hmm. And and it's very easy to find them. They're at uh, fanfaresignatures.com, where you can find not just my signature, but certainly John Delancey's, uh, many actors from Star Trek, including uh, George Takai, um, uh, others. Uh, you just have to go there and find out. Mm-hmm. 
Awesome. And that's uh, Fanfare, F-A-I-R mm-hmm. signature. Yes. Correct? Let me spell okay. that for you just to be clear, because it's F-A-N-F-A-I-R signatures, S-I-G-N-A-T-U-R-E-S.com. Um, it may be a lot to write, but when you get there, you're going to be very happy. Oh, okay. I've already bookmarked it on my computer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic idea for fans and so creative, especially during COVID. That's it. It was a brilliant idea, and and they have brilliant artists that do mm. renderings, not just of of the Star Trek characters and the and the, but certainly of the of the celebrities themselves, and in and in different ways that the celebrities are connected to different things. Uh, it, it uh, it's amazing artwork. You can get it for the signature. That's certainly understandable but you should also think about getting it for the artwork the artwork is extremely good extremely good so i brought up the the site and i'm looking at it right now and i would agree the art is very interesting because most of the times when you go to a convention it's really a portrait photo or a photo of the person in mm-hmm. uniform yeah this is interesting art that i've never seen at a convention before it's um i'm looking at george takei right now because he's one that i back when i was young I had seen him at a convention, but I could never afford autographs. I could barely afford my ticket, you know, when I was a high school student. And so I've been thinking about that. It's like, what's the likelihood that I might see some of these people at another convention? And so this is fantastic. And so there's a beautiful one of of him in the the Star Trek two, three, that era uniform with some other folks in the background. And it's it's beautiful. And it says stronger united and join Starfleet, infinite diversity, infinite combination. So mm-hmm. yes, I would support that concept that this is great, interesting. Thank art. you, Dina. And and let me also point out that you you get the artwork, you also get it framed. And it's uh, really reasonable. Um mm-hmm. I'm gonna take a stab at this because I really don't know, but I believe it's anywhere from thirty-five to fifty dollars is what you usually pay for for George's picture. Uh, mm-hmm. At a convention, it's going to be a lot more than that. Yeah, so it's up to seventy-five dollars. You, you, you get a piece of art signed virtually by George or I or any of the others, and it's delivered to your door. You don't have to step out. Uh, it's a great idea. I recommend them highly to you. This is so much better than the concept of NFTs, where you're just getting a digital. You're getting a tangible, physical piece of artwork that's framed. The signature is digital onto the artwork, but it's still the concept of you've created something that you want for yourself. As you're saying, you, you can build the, you can build the design. Is that right? That is absolutely right. And, and, and we'll write anything that you want. Uh, so it isn't just our signature. Thank you very much. Mm. But, uh, you know, I can put the first chapter of my first book in there. Uh, if there's room, <laughs> oh, that'd be cool. um, I mean, whatever you want, we're happy to do. And, and, uh, Owen and, and, uh, Emily, make it really, really very easy. I love it. Th- this is great. This is great. No, I, I love this. And I'm absolutely going to be telling my friends and family because I have a milestone birthday coming up in the middle of next year. And this is all I want right now. I, I, <laughs> yeah. oh, I, I think I just said, I said, Adina <laughs> needs to holster her credit card because she loves to collect autographs and, right, yeah. right. and to be able to creatively create your own of what the artwork is going to be rather than, like you said, mm-hmm. a stage photo. You yeah, know? I like the art. It's a, yeah. it's a great, great idea. Uh, happy 21st birthday, by the way, Adina. Um, <laughs> no, no, and... I'm, proud of my, I'm, prou- I'm very proud of my milestone. I'm going to be 50. And so I like to. Yeah, you're just I'm a child. You're just a child. <laughs> um, 
but the, the, it's just it's just amazing work. Um, and every time I speak to one of my friends about joining up, uh, they see the artwork and they immediately say yes. Oh wow! Yeah. Let Let me ask you a question, Armin. Can you get it done up with going back to your period of time when you were on Buffy? Right now, there's no Buffy posters. Oh. Uh, there are there for for my. <laughs> For me, there are two Quark posters, both hang mm-hmm. on my wall. It's the only uh, memorabilia or or stuff from Star Trek that does really hang on my wall. Oh. It's uh, because the artwork is so good. It just it's just phenomenal. So I I'm very proud to have it hanging in my den here. Um, so yes, uh, go the, the, go the, to uh, fanfaresignatures.com. Mm-hmm. See what we're talking about. Uh, I think you're going to want something like Adina. I think you're going to want mm-hmm. that, whether it's for a milestone birthday or not. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm already looking. I'm like, oh, there's oh, so much gosh. here. I got to be careful. <laughs> yes, I love your. I love the corks bar. That that's great because it's got it's got that very like Art Deco or Art Nouveau. I don't know that the right. It's got that feel to it, which is really it does nice. feel again, sort of Art Deco-y, and and that's just my posters. It's it's a slightly it's a different sort of motif for other people. Um, mm-hmm. it, it and and as I said in. In a number of weeks now, they're going to expand the number of people that they're representing uh, uh, in their company in Fanfare Signatures. Fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. There's, there's great stuff here. Oh, my gosh. Someone take my – yes. I, I I just kind of embarrassed that we never heard of it. And thank you for sharing this with us. Yeah. Well, as as I said, it, it, it – uh, it came into being because of COVID. So what's mm. that? Two, three, four years mm. ago. And yeah. um, and it took them a little time to ramp up. So uh, it's a relatively new company. But from what I'm hearing from them, they are growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, they're, they're about to have a, a huge uh, new growth spurt in, in uh, next year. So um, good for them. Good for them. Well, well I know yeah. that Brian will post a link at the... Absolutely. When, yeah. this, when, this, when this goes up, so people will easily be able to connect to it through the yep. uh the broadcast check out our check out our podcast links uh after you're done listening to the show and uh, it'll all be there we'll also have armin's uh, website personal website up there as well for you to enjoy and learn more about him and what he's going what he's got going on so you can link you to that. that through his website you can link to the the site mm-hmm. from his that's yeah. right. Yes, from mm-hmm. my website you can go to fanfare signatures as well as some other things that uh, I'm involved in. Awesome. Awesome. So something big has just happened or finished completed in the SAG after strikes. It isn't and completed remember, yet. It uh, isn't oh, completed oh, yet, but it's close. It's very Give close. us an update if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Uh uh what you're alluding to is the uh, 100 what was it 114 day mm. strike? Um, that the actors had and, and previous to our going on strike, the Writers Guild, the WGA, as we call it, um, was on strike. So uh, Hollywood was uh, off, was on on hiatus for about a half a year. We finally got a negotiated contract. And the reason why it's not completed yet is we have until December the 5th for the membership of my union of Screen Actors Guild AFTRA to vote uh, on the contract. And when, hopefully when that is voted up on December the 5th, um, we can all go back to work. Mm. So officially the actors, I'm sorry, go ahead, Dina. Oh, I was going to say, I've been seeing a lot of social media posts by, I think you and Michelle Hurd and folks, um, trying to, I I am surprised, you know, that you're going through a lot to try to convince your fellow SAG-AFTRA members that they should 
are you, are you concerned that this is not going to get ratified? Is that a real? I am concern? concerned. I, I'm 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 hoping that I'm totally wrong. Uh, it's a very good contract. It, it certainly affects the work that I did. Um, one of the main issues is something called artificial uh, uh, AI, and mm-hmm. uh, what actors are fearful of is that you could create with with different actors, uh, bits and pieces of an alien. So Quark, for instance, and, and you, you would, uh, wouldn't hire an actor. I wouldn't get a job, but, but, uh, computers could put together an image and that, that image could be an alien. So, um, but I have read the contract really carefully. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I see that the guardrails are there. I, one of the things I've done that perhaps you didn't mention in my introduction was that for seven years, I was a national board member on the Screen Actors Guild. And one of the things I did was in, in 2001, I helped, I was on the negotiating committee to negotiate one of these contracts, TV film contract. And uh, I'm, I know what I'm talking about when I tell you that this is a very good contract. This is a $1 billion contract. We have never gotten this much before. And uh, I'm very proud of the work that the negotiating committee did. In in fact, Michelle Hurd was one of the members of the negotiating committee. And uh, they have done an excellent job. And they put enough guardrails in there so that I feel comfortable. One of the things I also learned from being in the guild and being on negotiating committees is that um, contracts are a process. They're not an end game. What you don't get one year, you improve upon three years later when the contract comes up again. And and then you improve upon it again three years later. And you keep doing that until you have a perfect contract. This is the first step in AI. and, And they have done a great job. Things will get better as we progress. And as the as the technology progresses, we will learn more about what safeguards we need. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I am a little fearful that, that people are putting up disinformation about this contract. And I have been uh, strenuous about uh, putting out tweets uh, about why the contract is a good one. And I hope that everyone listening who is a member of, of SAG-AFTRA, that they will vote yes on this contract. And if That's- they don't, if they don't, um, we go back to square one. We don't mm. really just go out and improve it. We have to go back mm-hmm. to square one. And all oh, that see. $1 billion worth of, of, of improvements that we got on the contract will disappear. Mm. And in fact, there is, a light, there is a possibility, if we have to do that, to go back on strike. And yeah. nobody, nobody wants that. The sure. question so- I have for you, Armin, is what is the threshold for the agreement to happen is it 50 50.1% or is it some you know two thirds or something like that it's an excellent question and it's slightly complicated answer slightly so it has to be one vote more than 50% but okay. not of the membership i believe i'm going to take a stab here i believe there's 167,000 members in sag after it's it only has to be one vote more than 50% of the people who vote. And when I, again, when I was serving on the national board, we were lucky to get 27% of the membership to vote. So oh, wow. 
if 14% of the people voting vote no, it's a small minority of the membership, but it could mean the difference between accepting and not accepting this contract. Well, I was going to say, so all throughout the summer, while the the strike was ongoing, we kept, uh, you know, we're trying to, what can us, the fans, do to help? And, you know, we tried to write some letters. We participated in any of the fan-related, you know, um, picket lines, all those kinds of things. At this point, is there anything we can do to help? Or is it really repost your tweets uh, and there's not much we can do since we're not part of SAG? If you have friends who are members of the Guild, um, advocate for them to vote yes. I don't think there's much more than you can do. Um, we shall find out by December the 5th. So uh, I don't thank you for that, Adina. But I just I don't think there's anything to do but w- sit and wait. Yeah, it's it's been hard, you know, again, just to watch you all struggle through this, uh, you know, while we're going on with our lives and everything. It's just it's frustrating. We wish we could do more. Well, I was particularly interested in doing this. I I picketed many times. My wife and I were on the picket line quite a bit. And there were always a number of Star Trek actors there as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I did it not so much for myself. I did it so that the next generation of actors would have as good a contract Mm -hmm. as I had. And, And I had that contract because the people who came before me had done this. There was a huge strike in 1960. Uh, in which we got residuals, in which we got uh, pension and health. And thanks to those people going on strike and, and, and not having any work for a long period of time, I had a very nice contract to work under. And I'm trying to do that for the next generation of actors. And it's not just actors. There's a, many segments of our, of our union. There are stunt people. There are background people. There are dancers. There are singers. There are, there are pilots um, there's, there's a lot of different people who belong to the Screen Actors Guild after Union. Interesting. And I, I think that's something that a lot of us fans began to really research and learn about during the strike um, as to who, who was affected and what you guys were standing up for. And uh, it was just, it, it was really inspiring um, to see the support come out for SAG-AFTRA and uh, for just what you guys are standing up for, which is what we, that, that's what we should do in this country, right? We should stand up for our, our rights in that way and hope that, you know, hope that it comes out the way that is fair and honest and beneficial for everyone. Thank you, Brian. Yes, we should. Uh, and we're, we're sort of the canary in the cave. We are mm-hmm. one of the first to deal with uh, artificial intelligence, which will affect right. many mm-hmm. different businesses. Um, we, we're setting guidelines, guardrails, mm-hmm. so, that, so that we'll will be safe, as you say, but, we, but, but our policies certainly will be looked at by other unions. The, the automobile workers, they just had a major strike mm-hmm. and, and a successful contract. Um, one of the things that I believe in wholeheartedly is in the labor movement. Um, as I told you before, I served mm-hmm. as a national board member in, in my union. Um, and I, I believe unions were the, were the uh, inspiration for the middle class during the 50s and the 60s. And, and without those unions and, and their strength, the working Joes uh, are just to left to shift for themselves. It's wrong. And, and, 
and and this is what we're doing. It's not just billionaire yeah. actors, as yeah. people often yeah. say. It we're mm-hmm. and there's a lot of Joes in in our union that are not billionaires. You know, they're struggling to to meet their bills just like everybody else. We need to provide contracts so that they can they can survive. Yeah, yeah. We just we just showed my family is a big musical bunch of fans i I should say everybody my wife will watch musicals occasionally we just watched uh, newsies it's just interesting we're talking about this with you because my kids had all kinds of questions about what's a strike why are they doing Mm. this you know um and so to be able to share with them about the importance of that and in in that story what what those young kids stood up for um just tremendous uh, and so inspiring. So, well, thank you for doing that, Brian. I, I don't think people, especially younger generations, know the the, the union history. People died, right. were shot on on picket lines. Ugh, people uh, starved. Uh, people were ostracized from their communities because of picket lines. Um, um, the government uh, used federal forces to arrest picketers early on in the thirties. Mm. It, it 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 it's a, as I said. The union movement is what made the middle class. And and I do hope that that people like yourself are teaching their children to what that history is. Because if we forget about that history, um we'll be in sore shape if if unions go out of um, uh out of vogue. As they have been doing for the for a number of decades now. Are you allowed to talk about some of the specifics? Because I've been very curious about how the contract is approaching uh, residuals, especially with something like Netflix, where you can just go on and watch whatever you want anytime. Right. Um, I I know something about that. Forgive me, Christian, for not knowing more. Um, first of all, Netflix has its own contract. So it's been incorporated into this negotiation, but it has its own Netflix contract. What that means is we... We weren't on strike for that contract. We were on strike against Netflix, but not on that contract. Right. Okay. And another way to put this is we were on strike, but we still could do commercials. We weren't on strike for commercials. So anybody could do commercials. Uh, people who record for books, we weren't on strike for that contract. We weren't on strike for this. Now, um, streaming shows, oh, you're going to get me into the weeds here, but here we go. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Um, for decades, the way studios made money on television was through advertising. Mm-hmm. Advertising is what paid for all the TV shows you ever saw. Uh, they would they would get advertising money and they would use that money and they would put it into cameras and crews and actors and, and we'd have a TV show. Netflix uh, came up with a new idea. They decided not to advertise but to make their money off of subscriptions. So people would join up for Netflix and they would pay a fee and, and they would get all this, these TV shows, uh, old ones and new ones, but there would be no commercials because that was the point, not to have advertising. Well, what they came to find out was it didn't pay as well as advertising. So the, the, the revenue model wasn't as good as the ad advertising uh, revenue model was. And what happens was that people, you know, began to realize, oh my God, I've got to pay for this subscription, that subscription, this other subscription. I've got too many subscriptions. I I need to stop. And so people started 
to not buy subscriptions, and they began to sink. Netflix mm. had, had sort of done really well when they were the only game in town, but when they had competition, mm -hmm. it didn't do as well. Now, to your question about residuals, uh, residuals on streaming shows uh, like Netflix, like Paramount Plus, um, are lousy. You 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 can't live on on those residuals. Let me explain what a residual is. A residual is a payment that various entities, and by that I mean actors, directors, writers, uh, sometimes scene designers, uh, get for a TV show re-airing. Why do they get that? What what? Why do they deserve to get that money? Here's the reason. And Star Trek is a great example. You're being paid for your work being displayed again. If I were in the theater and went to work on Tuesday and got paid for Tuesday and then did the same performance on Wednesday but didn't get paid for that, you could see where that would be wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening here. We get residuals because we're doing the same performance again, although it's taped, and, and, and we're getting paid for that, and so are the directors, so are the writers, so are others. Now, that's not happening in, in streaming shows, or, or if it is, it's peanuts. And, and the other reason why residuals are important is there are, there are often periods of time when an actor is not working. And so there's no revenue coming in. There's no income coming in. So they can get by. They can, let, they can live to the next rent payment because they're getting a residual payment. And understand a residual payment is never as large as your original payment for, for performing. It's always smaller. And each time it's shown, it gets smaller and smaller. And oh, smaller. that's interesting. I didn't know oh, that. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know that either. Now, why, well, let me just finish by going back to why I said Star Trek is really important. Let's go to the original show. On that show, the, the um, not the, the top three, but the, I don't want to say the bottom four, but the other four um, became famous for their roles. Chekhov, Sulu, um, and the others. And when those actors went in for auditions, trying to get other work, those guys would walk into a room they would do a hell of an audition and they would walk out and the producers and the directors would say, oh, it's a wonderful audition, but I, I can't hire him. Mm. If once he goes on screen, they're going to think Sulu, Chekhov. They're mm. not going to think that he's a detective in New York City. They're just not. And so residuals are essential to help make up for that prejudice as well. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's interesting about you said about the, the diminishing return as more and more times it's shown. So now that all the episodes of Deep Space Nine are available for streaming 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in your PJs or whatever, <laughs> every time it's a quirk, an episode that you appear on, you don't get paid because I watched it today. How does that work that you get you get something for the fact that it's available for us to watch whenever we want to watch it. Those are streaming channels that you just described. Mm -hmm. And I get paid either nothing or very little for that. Now, if it, it was in syndication, which is what we originally made the sh our show anyway mm -hmm. for, um, uh, we would get 
syndicated residuals, which are never, which were never as good as prime times. If it had been on, it could have appeared on your NBC, CBS, ABC channel, because that's Mm -hmm. what syndication is. It can pair anywhere. But the contract said we did not get as good residuals as someone doing MASH, for instance. Okay. uh, Because that was on a primetime TV show uh, channel. So on streaming channels, even less, if anything at all, sometimes. So does this, so does the new contract potentially change that? going forward, assuming it's unfortunately not very much. No, there's a slight change, which is if a new show and only affects new shows on streaming channels. If a new show is a huge hit, Ted Lasso, for instance, Mm -hmm. and then the actors and uh, imagine the writers and the directors will get a a bump, uh, a bonus pay because they're on a hit show. And they will get whatever that fee is, they will get 80% of that divided amongst the people who, who, who uh, are entitled to it from the contract. The other 20% will go to the union and the union will distribute. I don't know how they're going to do this. The union will distribute that other 20% to the various actors on other not so successful streaming channels oh, so that they get a pittance uh, more than they than they would have before. And mm, for us that are used to, you know, a paycheck once a month or twice a month, however it works, does it just, how do you, can you audit this or is it just you go, well, you know, hey, look, uh, there's an extra $10 in my uh, checking account. Where'd that come from? Oh, yes. You know. The union will do its best to describe to you what that $10 is. But to the question, does it, can it audit it? We have never, except for one year, we have never been able to see the studio books. The union has uh-huh. never been able to see the studio books. So we depend upon they're telling us what they made and they, they send us money and we divide it up. Um, but that one year, I'm happy to say, my incredible wife, Kitty Swink, sat on a committee, uh, the residual study committee. And for one year, we negotiated hard and we got the ability to view those books for one year. And wow. it was an enormous education for everybody. That's interesting. Wow. I mean, working for a large government defense contractor, uh, we are audited up the wazoo. So I cannot imagine a situation where that is, uh, yeah, that is just a very hard to imagine. Right. So, so this is one of the things about streaming programming is we don't know what they're making. Mm-hmm. They say they're not making any. Uh, we assume they are, or they wouldn't continue to do it. Um, but what the actual figures are, we don't know. But we hope to find out. We hope to put there is some mechanisms in place in this new contract to get a better idea of what the revenue yeah. is. So, so even if they're publicly traded, the information that they're required to provide is not enough to. Right, right. This is one of the things. Forget the unions. This is one of the things Wall Street has a problem with the streaming channels. Interesting. They don't know for sure what these guys are making. They're very <laughs> secretive about their books. And yeah. and I think if they are losing money, the last thing they want to do is tell Wall Street they're losing money. It well, becomes right. blind faith <laughs> blind faith investing, you know. That's look, right. I mean, you can just see how many people are watching Paramount Plus, a mountain of entertainment and <laughs> They're going. They're they're selling stock. They're selling that on that dream, and if it doesn't do well, well, say there, you know, too bad. Yeah. you know. 
So that's the world we live in, shadows. And uh, right now we've made some inroads into that, but it's just, as I said before, it's a beginning process. We'll do better in three years. We'll do better even still in another three years after that. Um, and we'll see what happens. And I, again, hope that the next generation of creatives uh, will, will thank us for the work that we did. That's been language that has been probably the most inspiring for me as I've watched and, and watched videos of the picket line and heard people like Michelle Hurd talk and uh, Natalia talk. Uh, we, it's for the next generation. It's for generations to come. It's not just for our what we need today. It's projecting into the future, and that's that's just been phenomenal and so inspiring to see. I wish everybody had seen those pictures of the people on strike. It was it was an incredible spectacle of every community in our union coming together, walking mm -hmm. the streets, streets, you know, doing their best to support their union. It, it was a glorious time. Uh, I'm yeah. I'm very proud of the members of my union. Yeah. It was it was really nice that the neighbors got upset by all the horns being honk, honked by car drivers as we drove by Disney because I live here in so SoCal, drove by Disney Studios, drove by Paramount, drove by Columbia, and just, you know could see that the people on the street as they were driving by were supporting the strikers because they knew that these people were fighting for their paycheck because one right. day it could be them who are fighting for their paycheck. Precisely right, Steve. We, as I said before, we are the canary in the cave. We mm. are going first, happy to do so, to say, listen, there, there are inequities here that as we get new technology, we need to put guardrails up so that all unions will be protected from the onslaught of technology. Technology is inevitable. We're, mm. we're, we've got to thank everyone for the technology that we get. But we also have to be careful that it doesn't cause people to lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, that's essential. I, I think there was a, in the news today about an article that appeared in Sports Illustrated that they're questioning if it was written by AI or it was yeah. written by an oh, actual man. person. Well, and so. honestly, the part of the problem with that is the fact that they're not being truthful about it is the fact that they are masking and they were trying to pass off the AI writing as these are humans writing it. And that's kind of the the part part of the the problem is that, you know, they're they're not telling the truth about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. And and that uh, unfortunately is is becoming more and more the culture of our times and that has to stop. Yeah. And and for what it's you know worth. So my my masters is in AI stuff for, in computer science and for my work, I am actually very much looking forward to getting more of this technology available in what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. But yes, as technology is inevitable, so are the need for regulations and guardrails because technology in and of itself is neutral. It's then how are we using it or how are people using it? And people can use anything for good. They can use anything for evil. And we do need the laws and regulations to help ensure that the you know good is winning out. <laughs> Precisely so. And and what our unions are doing, because they must protect their members, is to make sure that there is still work available mm -hmm. for the members, to yeah. make sure that technology doesn't do away with whole swaths of areas. For instance, mm -hmm. um, people, you know, the actors were all talking about what it might do for the actors. But for me, I was concerned about the stunt people hmm. because stunts are dangerous. Right. And right. and yes, if we had AI, uh, we could take the danger out of it and just, uh, you know, 
and use uh, avatars for the stunts. And it, it would look, after a while, really very real. The problem, the downside, of course, is all those thousands of stunt people would be out of work. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a thin line to walk, uh, but it's one that has to be addressed. Now, speaking of writing, uh, if we could shift gears a little bit, if you guys don't mind, I, I wonder if there's some fans out there Armin, who have no idea you're also a writer yourself in that you've created a series of books. Um, you want to talk about that for a few minutes? Sure, absolutely. Um, oftentimes while waiting to get in front of the camera and they would, uh, they would say, oh, we'll get to you in an hour, we'll get to you in two hours. <laughs> um, I just got bored watching TV in my trailer and decided to start writing about something that uh, was interesting to me. Uh, I started off with a series of books called Merchant Prince, uh, which was set in the 22nd century, I think. And um, it was about a, a Renaissance magus who uh, was quite an extraordinary man. His name was Dr. John D. And uh, my publisher wanted me to write these these novels, science fiction novels. Um, and he sort of hinted that he wanted John D to be a lot like my character of Quark. So I wrote those books. Uh, I wrote three books and uh, very proud of them. I did them in the first two I did in collaboration with two more established science fiction writers. And that was sort of my learning process for how to write and, and how to, you know, how to structure my story. Uh, my third one I did by myself because I had sort of learned my lessons and, and wanted to write by myself. And then uh, after I graduated from, from Star Trek um, and began to teach more and more Shakespeare, I felt that I owed John D an apology that I had not written about him, but I had written about my science fiction character. Hmm. And so I thought I need to write something that's truly close to his life. Hmm. And I came up with an idea for a political mystery. And I wrote three books. They're called the Illyria series. Uh, they feature John D. He is the primary character. But he's in this case, he's um, he's accompanied by a very young William Shakespeare, who's about 16 years old. Oh, wow. We, we don't know. We don't know how. Shakespeare went from being a local boy in Stratford where he got the ability, the talents, the wherewithal to become English's greatest writer. And I am proposing that John Dee may have been enormously helpful to him. We know that Shakespeare read a lot of books. We can see as you were saying, Adina, we, we can see uh, where he's he's taken passages from other writers and stuck it into his plays. Um, so he had access to a lot of books. The thing is, there were no libraries really then. And he hadn't and books were enormously expensive. So where did he have access to these books? Um, and John Dee had the largest library in in England. He lived about eight miles away from downtown London. And um and and there are some hints that John D may have been helpful. So my three books are about a, a, a political mystery. We're, we're looking at whether a particular count is loyal to the English throne. Uh, at this time, again, I'm getting into the weeds here. So sorry. That's okay. Um, at this time in English history, 
there is a great, great antipathy between Catholics and Protestants. The England is Protestant at this moment in time under Queen Elizabeth, but prior to Queen Elizabeth, England had been Catholic under Queen Mary, and uh, their father was both Protestant and Catholic. The the count that who's in question is a Catholic. He he supervises an island in the English Channel, and the English throne is pretty sure that priests are coming in from Europe and sneaking into England to conduct mass. Understand that in Elizabeth's time, Queen Elizabeth's time, the the uh, the performance of mass was against the law. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do that. And just to be clear, uh, people just, were doing it because we there were Catholics. About, Say again. No, sorry. I just want to make sure that our, our audience understands we're talking about Queen Elizabeth the first, not yes, yes. I'm sorry, yes. Queen Elizabeth the <laughs> first. Just to make first, sure that you. there's no confusion there. One, I always assume when I say Shakespeare that people know that, but you're absolutely right. I should say just, Queen just Elizabeth in case, just in case yeah. people don't yes. know. Yes. The the story is, and John D is sent to find out whether or not this particular count is loyal to the to Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, but during the course of the time of the novels, we see John Dee teaching Shakespeare to be a better writer. Wow. And so at the end of the series, we have Shakespeare going back to the theater uh, to write the plays that he's about to write. And and the count uh, in, I'm giving away this, the uh, punchline here, but... Uh, the Count in my series is uh, Count Orsino. And for those of you who are familiar with Shakespeare's play, that name should be familiar because that is the Count in Twelfth Night, Shakespeare's comedy, the Twelfth Night. Mm. And in fact, almost all the characters in Twelfth Night are characters in my books. Interesting. That's great. Is Very there, interesting. Is there a moment that you remember uh, or a passage in a Shakespeare play? Like what turns you on to, you know, one day you're not necessarily a Shakespeare fan. The next day you are... You love Shakespeare. Do you know what that was? It wasn't a moment. It was an experience. Uh, When I moved from New Jersey to California, actually a year after that, um, I was in an English class with a man named Mr. Jensen. He was my teacher. And he browbeat me to audition for, for the drama club. And the second play the drama club did was Hamlet. Mm -hmm. And he he cast me as King Claudius. And that's when I fell in love with the language. So much so that when I graduated from high school, I went to UCLA. I became an English major where I met a man named David Rhodes, uh, who was professor of Shakespeare at UCLA. And um, he inspired me even more. And and uh, from then I, I was lucky enough to graduate. I wasn't lucky to graduate. I did my work. But I was lucky enough right before graduation to get hired by a prestigious Shakespeare festival in California called the San Diego Old Globe. And um, my life and the, my pathway was pretty much set at the Old Globe, where, wow. I, where I learned from wonderful Shakespearean actors how to take what I had learned at UCLA and put it into performance. Was the old globe down in the Balboa Park area? Yes, yes. That's what it's the, the same old globe. Yep. The, the, the Spreckles, did they use the Spreckles Theater to perform at? Uh, no, we were then at the old globe itself. It okay. had at that time two theaters. Now it has three. 
but uh, but the theater that I performed in, the Old Globe itself, is still there, modernized, mm-hmm. but still there. And um, if I may uh, uh, take this moment, I, I mentioned David Rhodes, uh, who was my Shakespeare teacher. David Rhodes is also responsible for um, Patrick Stewart being Picard. Oh, my um, God. Oh, yes. He talked about this story in his autobiography. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, David uh, hired, excuse me. Yes. David hired Patrick Stewart, uh, a young English actor and other English actors to come to UCLA to help him with uh, the teaching of Shakespeare. And while Patrick was there performing in a classroom situation, Bob Justman, one of uh, Roddenberry's mm-hmm. associate producers, saw Patrick in the classroom and uh, went back to Roddenberry and said, mm. I think I found the captain. Wow. That is Amazing. a great tie in story. My goodness. <laughs> one of the, I was going to ask, one of the questions I always have when thinking about Shakespeare and the fact that you've, you know, you've performed it for a very long time. Are there any particular scenes or dialogue that you find are particularly challenging? Um, yes, there are. There are a lot. I teach Shakespeare, and one of the things I do is take that fear of Shakespeare out of the students' heads. I, mm. I show them. It's called rhetoric. I show them the principles of rhetoric, which is what Shakespeare studied from the first day of class until the day that he graduated, and everybody else studied it as well. And once you understand the fundamentals of rhetoric, the difficulty with Shakespeare becomes exponentially easier. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's not the iambic pentameter so much, which I rarely ever teach, but but rather the rhetoric, how words are put together. Um, if we can, I, I will, I, I know you're limited in time, but I, I will just take oh, no, this we, to, we, we, yeah. We've gone on long, okay. long and, and conversations. I, I will take advantage of your offer and, and give you an example. <laughs> Please. There's a very famous line in Romeo and Juliet. Romeo is, is looking up at Juliet's balcony. She hasn't appeared on stage yet. But there is a light coming from her room. And the very famous line that everyone is familiar with, I think, is what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Juliet is the sun. I've listened to many, many an actor say that line. And I was quite sure that they didn't understand what they were saying because they didn't understand the principles of rhetoric. So to make mm-hmm. this as simple and as easy and as fast as I can, in rhetoric, there's a principle called antithesis. It's words that are opposites. Shakespeare loved opposite words. The most famous line in Shakespeare is an antithesis, to be or mm. not to be. That is the question. That's an antithesis. So in this line, what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. I've asked countless classes, what does that mean? And they will give me all sorts of reasons for what they think it means. And it's rare that I ever get a student. Sometimes I do, but it's rare that I get a student who actually knows, understands the meaning of the line. The antithesis, although it's not a, it's not a perfect opposite. It's something that I call a juxtaposition is the East. That is the the sun coming up in the East. It's sunrise, which Mm -hmm. we know to be a really dim light. Um, And again, we're talking to the candlelight that's coming from Juliet's room. 
and the and the juxtaposition to that dim light is this light that comes from the full day sun. So we have dim light versus glaring light. Mm. An actor who simply says, what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun, knows nothing about what that line means. Hmm. The correct interpretation, and there are always different ways to do this, but for me, the correct interpretation is for the actor to do it this way. What light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. (laughs) And you can hear the juxtaposition. Yeah, I always assumed it was a straight metaphor. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. I wish we had learned this in high school because I remember like I always wanted to. I always liked it, but our teachers never really gave those kind of explanations because they didn't know, Christian. Yeah, because they didn't know. Mm -hmm. The the teaching of rhetoric uh, is not used. Well, it's not taught that often, and when it is, it's usually for uh, other things than performance. But but because Shakespeare always studied this, and it and and antitheses and juxtapositions are everywhere in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Once mm-hmm. you know that they're there, there you see them constantly. There 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 there's not a a scene, there's not a page of Shakespeare that doesn't have an antithesis or a juxtaposition. And the, and juxtapositions and antitheses are just one of, I'm going to make this number up, of about 250 different techniques in rhetoric. Mm, mm. And when I teach my class, I teach about five or six of those, what's called figures, figures of speech. I teach five or six of those those figures to my students. And their understanding of Shakespeare is, is, is just incredibly uh, enhanced. Mm-hmm. And what's more important than that is that their audiences all of a sudden understand the words that they didn't understand before. Now, that said, Christian, I'm going back to your original question. Are there sections of Shakespeare that are difficult? Yes, there are. Um, Because you have to suss out. It's like a crossword puzzle. You have to suss out what the meaning of the lines are. But it is the actor's job to do that. And by the way, I just said the line is indicative. You can make the line clearer to an audience that is in the dark about the meaning. It, it, it is a great joy to do that exploration and to communicate the words. And when you do, the gorgeousness of some of Shakespeare's language mm-hmm. uh, just comes home to roost. Now I want to take your class in rhetoric. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the theater that I that I help run or used to help run uh, is offering a class uh, starting in February. Go to antias.org and uh, sign up for my class. Oh, I'm in Maryland, so. And, uh, it's yeah. all on Zoom. You, this is oh, not a problem. I teach across the world. I've had lots of classes where I've had people in Ireland, England, France. Uh, one time there was someone in Af- Afghanistan. They were all taking the wow. class with people in huh. Los Angeles. That's wonderful. I might have to do that. And well, again, and I'm not interested necessarily, like I have, I have no acting You're not interested in, in the acting body. part. You're interested yeah. in the rhetoric. That, exactly. Um, yes, and yes. my class is for that too. Yeah. And I, I won't ask you to perform, but by listening to how they do it <laughs> and, and, and the introduction, introduction to the rhetoric, it will enhance your writing ability as well just as it did Shakespeare's. And that's that's one of the reasons I'd be interested. And my knowledge of Shakespeare, I mean, of course, I studied the one or two plays in high school, you know, that we did in English class. But 
most of my knowledge comes from studying uh, books by John McWhorter. Are you familiar with him? No. He's, I liken him to, he's like the Neil deGrasse Tyson of linguistics and the English language. He has a lot, tons of books mm. on like how our language evolved. And so hence there's a lot of Shakespearean things and, and everything. It's, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff, but that's the part, you know, I'm, I'm interested in. I tell people that like in another life, I'm actually a linguist because it's just <laughs> how words came to be, how phrases we, you know, use came to be. And, and so much of it does derive, derive, yeah, derive from that. And so continuing the study of all that stuff is fascinating. It is indeed. And, and you and I have both spent our lives studying it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, David Rhodes. <laughs> um, if, Armin, if I ask you this question, you've done television, you've done movies, you've done theater work. Mm-hmm. Quite a few years ago, I think maybe 10 or so, uh, I met you with my daughter, Jennifer, at a science fiction convention out here in Burbank. She was so excited to meet the principal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because she grew up watching Buffy. And she walked up and she started to chat with you. And she was all just, you know, you know, ah, 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 like that, you know. And then you <laughs> asked her, what does she do? And she says, Oh, I'm going to Cal State Fullerton learning stage management. And as soon as you heard that, the conversation that you two had was all about stage work her involvement, what she's doing. You inspired her. You excited her about theater more than ever. She ended up graduating with a degree in stage management and was a stage manager for a couple of plays at the college. But it just seemed to me, and as I was standing back, just watching you two going back, talking shop, that it seemed like theater is your number one choice of love when it comes to performing. Is that right or wrong? That is absolutely right. I always consider myself a stage actor. I I, mm-hmm. I know I've worked in TV and thank you TV for giving me a nice living. But, um, but I understand working on stage. It is about language, going back to what Dean and I were just talking about. It's about language and, and about an immediate conversation between the actors and the audience. Every performance is different. Every night is different. Um, and, and, and thanks to people like your daughter, we're able to get through it every night because she's doing all the hard work, uh, making sure that the sets are in the right place, the actors are in the right place, the lights are on, the, the sound is working, um, making sure that we all get there at 7.30. She has a ton of responsibilities as a stage manager. and But theater is my foremost love, and uh, everything that I do springs from that first love. That that first, I mentioned Mr. Jellison in my high school, um, who introduced me to the theater. Uh, I'm enormously grateful to him and yeah. to all the people that I've met in that industry. As are we wow. that you ended up and ended up going into the direction of acting and doing that. Thank you. Um, and, and most of us on Star Trek uh, have stage background. That's m- mm-hmm. most of us uh, are from the stage. Most of us have classical stage background. Yeah. yeah. It, it is. Is it my imagination or does it seem to be? Is that un- unusual in the sense of my feeling has always been that Star Trek has a lot of actors that have that background and have a Shakespearean background. 
at a higher percentage or a higher rate than like other shows, other franchises, other groups. Is that I, I my imagination a, or? I wouldn't know if it's a higher percentage. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't know that. I do know that it's a large percentage in the Star Trek universe. I, I've always attributed to the fact that we, uh, I didn't, but other characters have a lot of techno babble to talk and they have to make it sound real and they have to make it sound like they believe in what they're mm. talking about. Well, that's similar uh, to when you're doing Shakespeare that um, you have difficult language that you have to make sound believable. Um, I will point out just in passing that uh, uh, Jonathan Frakes and I met in a small theater in New York uh, back in 19... 19- 77. Um, I've been married for 42 years to Kitty Swink, um, but I've known Frakes longer. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Incredible. So let's so, let's go ahead and just fully transition then to Star Trek. Uh, because we we absolutely love just talking. I'm gonna give a shout out to my dad, okay, who introduced me to Star Trek. I called him today and said, guess who's coming on the show tonight? He couldn't believe it. He goes, he's, and he said this, and he's always said this. Uh, but the order he gets, the more he repeats himself and forgets what he says. You know, sorry, It happens. It, it is happens. true. <laughs> uh, and I'm starting into that phase, I think, unfortunately, in my life. Uh, but uh, he said he really feels that Quark was the most interesting and remains the most interesting character developed in star trek most well-rounded just all you know just he loved all the ferengi episodes and just look forward to any time you were portraying quark um and i think that says i think there's probably a large group of people that would say the same thing that even to this day how they develop quark your portrayal of him uh was just so good it still stands up to this day it's still interesting Mm -hmm. it's still good stories. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And thank your father as well. Um, I I will tell a story that I've told too many times. So I'm repeating myself now as well. So we'd love it. Yeah. um, Okay. Do it. I created the Ferengi with three other actors in next generation. Mm -hmm. I abhorred that's, and that's too nice a word. (laughs) I, I, I abhorred what I did. It, it the, wasn't, it was it my was, fault. What I did was atrocious, God awful. It, 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 it suffered from being way too theatrical mm. and, um, and, and way too campy. And, and it, should you ever see that original Ferengi episode, you'll notice that I have slightly a hunch yeah, and yeah. I have a limp <laughs> and I'm sort of doing Richard III. Um, <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> the episode um, is The Outpost for those yes, of you that want to go outpost. back. And, yeah. and I so was embarrassed by that. And the terrible mm. thing about performing on camera is it doesn't disappear. Uh, <laughs> a stage performance can be forgotten and you can do better the next night to make up for what you thought was a bad night the night before. It doesn't happen on camera. Um, and so my whole agenda, once I'd gotten the role, was to atone for mm. the bad work that I had done on Next Generation and and turn to quote Brent Spider on a different thing altogether, but to take the character with the least amount of potential and try to make him the character with the most amount of potential. Mm. Uh, this is something Brent told me when he was starting to do data. 
that was his aspirations as mm-hmm. well. Oh, interesting. That's in, d- Does that mean he thought that Data had the least amount of potential? That's what he thought. Now, when I wow. worked with him, it was on Last Outpost. It was while shooting yeah. that okay. episode. Um, and so th- that must have been, I, I'm going to take a guess, like episode five, seven, something like early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, he just, that's what he said to me. So, and I, I had known wow. Brent from before Star Trek. So we, we had uh, an understanding. I wouldn't say a friendship, but an acquaintanceship. Yeah. But you know, that's interesting you say that because the most beloved characters are the ones that were never expected to be the most beloved character. Leonard Nimoy was not supposed to be the most beloved character, but he got the most fan mail mm-hmm. in the original series and they kept building him and so on. And so you can see the same thing where, you know, Data was there, but they had the most fun building his character. And in your case, in the work where's the quirk, building this character of who he was, the type of business he ran, how he did his, you know, it 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 was it was a lot of fun. It it is a lot of fun. And also you're you're absolutely right, Steve. It, it's what actors call an arc. Uh if you start at a very low point, then you have a long way to go. Uh you have mm. the opportunity to go a long ways in order to improve upon that 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 uh, uh iffy beginning. And uh, I'm not sure that Brent uh, was that far down, but certainly my character was. My character, uh, you couldn't get any lower than I was. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so I was determined to make him as three-dimensional as any of the captains in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as someone, think- so again, it, it definitely 100% worked. You know, the Ferengi arc, in Deep Space Nine was my favorite part of Deep Space Nine, partly because I'm not the, you know, the Dominion War that overshadowed so much of it. I'm less into any science fiction for like military-ish things. I'm interested for the other stories, the other parts. And so to Mm -hmm. me, that was one of the reasons why the Ferengi was the most interesting part of that. But I just want to just say that, 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 Brent Spiner thought of that about data from the beginning is just mind blowing to me because I can still remember being 14, watching the first episode air. And that was what most impressed me about. Oh, that's interesting. Because it was the opposite for me. I, I was not a data fan at first. In fact, when they killed off Tasha Yar, I wish it would have been data originally. And and that's, that was as a young kid. I mean, come on, yeah. you know. That but scene where he's, that's interesting. He's walking Adina. arm in arm, like with with Doctor McCoy. That yeah. little scene is what. Well, just, that's yeah, that's fantastic. That yeah. Brought me in. I was an instant Data fan from that moment. Yeah. I was a Data fan today. since Elementary, dear Data, when he did the Sherlock. That's when I went, okay, I like this. I like this character, but but that's the case. Anyways, this one particular role or or that's what they do that makes you go, I like this guy. At least he's the one I really root for. Yeah. Whatever. You know? like, with so Clark, it was I just like, oh, sorry, Chris. Go oh, ahead, I was just gonna say, like, even some of I, I actually did a video about him, and I was saying like. Even some of the weakest episodes of DS9 are always saved because there's something at Quark's Bar and there's usually mm-hmm. a great conversation about some aspect of life. And like, especially with you and Odo, it's just like, man, that never gets old for me. Yeah. Quark had amazing yeah. lines, amazing dialogue. Amazing. And always really good in that they were funny, but they would also 
maybe challenge some of the opinions that you as the viewer might have towards the Federation, which I always appreciated. Mm -hmm. Well, that that was uh, intrinsic to uh, Star Trek writing, uh, whether it was Spock or Data or Quark. Um, uh, it was always the alien, the other, who was able to stand outside of humanity and say, you guys think you're perfect, but you've got flaws. Let me tell you what they are. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, hopefully the humans humans would um, <laughs> thank you would widen their eyes and go oh you're right you're right you're right and and certainly the audience might think that as well. Well, I, think always, of it, I was going to say go ahead, Chris. Oh yeah, I was going to say like my favorite example of that is when you're talking to Cisco and you're like yeah you guys don't have any war uh, any money or any famine right now but you've had all of these atrocities. Mm -hmm. But Ferengis, we've we've been doing this for I don't know how long you'd say, but like we've never had any of those issues. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, you know, what? you're right. But Cisco <laughs> doesn't even acknowledge it. Uh, a lot of people. Uh, it's hard to see your own flaws. It's hard to see your own right. flaws. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's easy to see it in others. Mm -hmm. What I was going to say was, did you feel a, a pang of pride when at the Las Vegas Star Trek experience that they made Quark's bar and not 10 forward that they I chose. was very proud of that Steve yeah. I was enormously proud of that um I was there I was there at the first night mm. that it was opened um they invited me to the closing night as well but I couldn't make that night but I was there on the night that it opened and I was yes and pride yes I was enormously proud yeah. Um, and I must say during the dozen times or so that I visited the bar for various reasons, they always treated me like the boss. I mean, one <laughs> time they took me back in the back room and showed me what you know, the numbers that they were making as far as profit. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, I found that hilarious. Um, but, and where was your I'm residual from uh, that? Where did your residual come from? I don't know how that? many gold press bars of wax. I, I didn't get any residuals, making. but I did get a lot of free drinks. And then they made Quark's bar a thing now in lower decks. Yeah, that, I don't know about yeah. it. I don't know that. Hmm. I, I mean, there's an episode with Quark yeah. in it. Yes. Which was yes. so good. Yes. I was so yes, glad. I do know about that. Yes, absolutely. Well, and then they, I mean, in other episodes, they flashed kind of like in the background, Quark's bar is like, exists. In, oh, it's like know, a franchise yeah. now, which yes. is the best thing. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. It's like, I, I can see why you weren't like, why they wouldn't want to make the character successful in DS9, but it's nice to see that post DS9, Quark is quite successful, has a franchise. And it's like, yes, yes, but he doesn't have a moon yet. He Not doesn't a have yet. a moon yet. Appreciate <laughs> <Right. laughs> you saying that. That's going to make my night. I just want it to be known, Mr. Shimmerman, that I was with you guys all the way in the original run of Deep Space Nine. Thank no, you. No, no. Thank I, you, Brian. I was you, there you, from you start to others. finish. You and two others. <laughs> I was not, not that I wasn't no, there. Was I'm just brown. saying that that there are certain parts of Deep Space Nine I like better than other parts of Deep Space sure. Nine. Sure. You know, I really, I really, uh, I loved that, especially during the Dominion War, which I did like that arc, but I liked it because they were losing. And they had to deal with harder subject matter, darker subject matter at times because of that. And so I think it, it gave them the writers opportunities to dive into, uh, you know, the Siege at AR-55 episode. Right. Fantastic. You know, got a poster for um, 
whichever episode where he says it's a fake. I can't remember the name of it. Oh now. yeah, that's uh, in the fantastic yeah. stuff where they take the characters in different places um, and really dive into some harder stuff to talk about. I think D Space Nine is is just one is the example of that in Trek where they went there um, and you know they were just brave in how they would go into that stuff. The our, writers, our writers were astounding. And what they were interested in was not so much about saving worlds uh, or, or that sort of thing, but but rather about investigating mm. what's like for people to to have harsh edges and have to be forced to live together in a small space. Um, it, it, they were much more interested in humanity than they were in adventure. Mm. Uh, so much so that we were getting a lot of bad feedback from the studio uh who couldn't understand why after four seasons we didn't have a ship why aren't you going somewhere right, right um and eventually they gave us the defiance so that we could go somewhere but but it was about exploring the darker edges of humanity although the raison d'etre for my character was to lighten that up mm-hmm. not just me but all the other ferengi as well um was to lighten that up but but I, I'm appreciative of that. I always say we weren't about boldly going somewhere. We were about boldly staying in one place and learning mm-hmm. about each other. Yes. And it was yes. perfect for that. Now, I have to ask, one of my favorite episodes of The Ascent, it's, I have to ask, what was that like? Because it's like, for me, it's the perfect episode. It's, it's Quark and Odo on a runabout, banter, and then crashing, and then them having to deal with being on the planet and trying to get back. Like, to me, that looked like it was a very grueling episode to film. <laughs> it was, but not for the reason you think. Okay. <laughs> um, there were two things that happened. Uh, I'll give you the first one, which was during the course of that episode, for those who don't know that episode, we're stuck on a mountain and it's freezing cold and there's only one blanket. And mm-hmm. the two characters are squabbling about who gets the blanket. Now, the reality is we were shooting in the middle of summer uh, and uh, it was hotter really? than hell on that mountain. <laughs> and, and Renee and I used acting. to cool. Yeah. Used to you know, say, isn't it his turn with the blanket? I don't want the blanket. Can we have the blanket? <laughs> and the glove too, right? Didn't you have to share a glove or you yeah, only had yeah, two yeah. gloves? So you'd say, it, yeah. It, it was very hot up there. And uh, uh, all the crew were in shorts and we were in these costumes. And, <laughs> be darn. Uh, you know, trying to, they were feeding us water constantly. Now, the other thing that happened in that episode very quickly, we were at a very high altitude. Mm. And... When I got there the first day, I felt very lightheaded, uh, which I had never suffered from before. And and there's one point where they asked me to walk a, a log across a, a very shallow stream. and Easy, really easy to do. But that log was swimming in front of my eyes. And I, mm. I said, I, I, I don't know if I can do this. And uh, they asked me what the matter was. And I told them. And um, we all realized my, excuse me, my makeup is was sealed around my neck, so the air inside had nowhere oh. to escape. Oh. And what was happening was the pressure inside the prosthetic makeup was building 
on my head because of the of the high altitude. And so the pressure inside the head was exponentially mm. larger than it normally was, and it was pressing mm. against my my. Uh, I see. You know sensibilities, so uh, they gave me some uh, uh, emergency, which did the trick, and I was able to shoot the rest of the episode. So um, those were the two sort of exceptional things about that. Uh, and of course, at that point, Renee and I are the best, best of friends, incredibly good friends. Um, and the fact that this episode was just basically Quark and Odo, uh, we enjoyed that no end. <laughs> um, the truth of the matter is people always talk about the, that relationship. And, and when Renee was still around, we used to shake our heads because we knew there weren't that many scenes with the two of us together, not compared to other people. Um, mm. So what we did was choice and, uh, and people remembered. So we were very grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I asked so, you this question. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Brian. Oh, I was just going to ask, are there any uh, tricks to playing cold, as silly as that sounds? Because watching it, I'm like, are they actually that cold? Because it looks, it's so good. I recall breath cut, like the cold breath coming from your mouths occasionally. Was that all special uh, effects? They may have asked us to chew on a little uh, dry ice. It's possible. I don't oh, remember. God. Oh, my gosh. Um, Interesting. But it was it was very hot. Um, and uh, as far as acting cold, uh, you know, there's an old joke. The punchline is that's acting. Uh, that's what we do. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. so, so I was going to ask you, you mentioned about how proud you were of the writers and how yes, they very proud of the writers. When, since you created this character back in TNG, when the writers would write the script, did you read it over and go, no. No, he wouldn't say that. No, that's not how he. No, speaks. that that wasn't possible on our show. Now, it it was possible. It just never happened. Okay. At, at least mm -hmm. in my awareness. Here's why: they did a lot of that in TNG, where the where the actors would speak to the writers about what they didn't like about scripts, and and sometimes they would steal lines from guest stars because they wanted that line and they didn't want to mm -hmm. give it to the guest star. <laughs> so Berman, in his wisdom. Um, decided when he created the second show, Deep Space Nine, uh, he would not have the actors and the writers ever communicate. In fact, we went through the first three years of Deep Space Nine not knowing who our writers were. We had wow. never oh, met them. Wow. We got scripts. Uh, we, I'm sure that Avery had the ability to speak to the writers. I'm sure that uh, if Nana was, was really upset, she could find a writer. But but we didn't really know who they were, um, and it wasn't until Ira took over the show from Michael Piller that uh, he didn't like that situation, and we had a Christmas party, I remember, once at Quark's, and the crew was there, the actors were there, some of the executives from Paramount were there, and the entire writing staff was there. And Ira sort of said, okay, I'm going to play this game, I'm going to put eight people up on the stage and, and you guys have to tell me who they are. And, uh, he picked Nana, he picked Terry McCluggage, who was the head of the Paramount, uh, studio at the time. And he picked two other people. And, uh, he asked these four people, do you know who these eight people are? And nobody, not even Terry McCluggage, who was the boss, uh, I have no idea who these guys are. Wow. And he said, these are your writers. These are the guys that put words in your mouth. Get to know them. 
And so, although they didn't come to the set very often, because it was a long distance between the writer's room and, uh, and our set, they mm. did come on, on rare occasions. So we got to know them better. Um, so no, so there was very little opportunity to okay. say, I don't like this line. I, I, can we do it a different way now? And, and the other thing about lines on our show, we had to say them exactly mm-hmm. the way they were written. Really? We could not, yeah. we could not ad lib any words. The best sound you heard after a long day and having just done a scene and they just yelled cut. You would turn to the script coordinator, Judy Brown, and if she smiled and said, DLP, lovey, uh, <laughs> then we knew, okay, fine. DLP, dead letter perfect. Oh, that's okay. great. That's okay. great. <laughs> that's that's wow. Wow. I'm going to remember that phrase. <laughs> it, it, it's a one, it's, it's, it still rings in my imagination. Uh, and, and, and I've been on shows where they didn't have that ethic. And, um, and I've always agog when, when, when actors start to ad lib a little or change the words a little, because that's so antithetical to, to what I was trained to do on Star Trek. So that's with the words you were saying, how much ad libbing was there perhaps even in your direction as far as movement response? Was it, was that as strict or was, was no, this... um, we could, we could perform the lines any way we liked as long as we got the exact words out. Okay. And, and oftentimes I know the writers were angry with me because I would not do the line the way they imagined it. Now <laughs> they never told me what they wanted. <laughs> right. The director never told me what they wanted. So I had only my own imagination and creativity to prompt me about how to do it. But Ira has often told me in the years since the show closed, he wished he had come to the set more often to let the actors know what the writers had in mind as far Mm -hmm. as interpretation of lines. So I could do things the way I wanted to. And if the director didn't like them, uh, he would say to me, can you do it this way or can you do it that way? But the truth is, the series regulars rarely got direction from the directors. Oh, that's so interesting. And it, it, one, because we were very good actors, but two, it was just politics. Mm. Um, if a director told an important actor how to do something and the, and the actor took umbrage, the director feared that he or she would not be asked back to do mm. another episode. Gotcha. Okay. So that's politics. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know for sure, but I, but I assume that a number of directors got axed because of that. Did you have a favorite director to work with? Um, I always enjoyed working with the actors when they directed because they knew the character better mm-hmm. than anyone else. Um, there were a lot of fine directors, a lot of fine directors. So the answer is no. No, okay. I didn't have a favorite. I didn't have a favorite. That's okay. I was going to say, because you brought up the word magnificent, and I feel like legally we're <laughs> obligated to talk about the certain episode, uh, <laughs> Magnificent Ferengi. What was mm. that experience like? Because I've often heard that you say that with any of the Ferengi episodes, it's like you get together with all the other Ferengi actors and you would spend a weekend trying to to rehearse the episode and the rest of the scenes. That's right. Um my fellow Ferengi, the actors who played Ferengi, were very kind 
about joining me on those major Ferengi episodes at my house during the weekend. They weren't paid. Uh, my wife may have served lunch, but uh, they weren't paid. And we would spend hours and hours and hours working on the scenes. Go back to the original conversation we had, like you do in the theater. We rehearsed it. Because uh, for TV, you rehearse maybe, maybe, eight, nine minutes for a scene. Then they send you back to the trailer for makeup and, and costume adjustments and stuff like that. You, you don't get a chance to, to really find out what the other people are going to do. Mm -hmm. So we would rehearse it uh, until we had it down like a scene from the theater. We did this for two reasons. One is the one I just told you because there wasn't a lot of time to rehearse on stage. The other is all of us who wore heavy prosthetic makeup knew that after a certain amount of hours, for me, it was basically nine. After about nine hours of wearing the head, I would get a little punch drunk. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, it, it just, it was like having a head cold and, mm. and you couldn't, couldn't think straight. But our days could go anywhere from 12 to 16 hours. So between nine and 12, if I didn't rehearse it like a play where I knew it uh, like the back of my hand, uh, then I was going to be behind the eight ball. So we did that to protect ourselves from looking like mm. fools at the mm. end of the day. Also, we did that so that we knew what each one of us was going to do. And we would come up with ways to do it a little better, uh, to, to figure, Oh, you're going to do that. Then I'll, I'll do this. Uh, and, and, and then, and always, again, between that period of time, between nine and 12, when the head is a little leery and, and, and a little foggy, mm -hmm. um, we would have, we would rehearse the lines over and over and over again so that we could do them in our sleep. It, it was an essential for us to do that. And we did that for seven years. And although we always did it for Ferengi episodes, um, oftentimes Max, who played Rom, my brother, or Aaron, who played Nog, my nephew, even for non-Ferengi episodes, if we had a, a major scene, we would do that. Wow. And again, since you have a, a lot of time, I will tell you this story as well. I've talked about the Ferengi. I like doing that. And there was a scene between Quark and Garrick in the bar. And... I asked Andy to come over for the weekend. Uh, he only lives a mile away, so it was easy for him to do. And we rehearsed that scene and found that there was a lot of subtext in the lines that we knew the writers hadn't thought about. And, and hmm. what we realized was, at least what I realized, was these were two Machiavels sitting across the bar from each other talking about the Federation. Uh, uh, Andy mm -hmm. was the was the prime Machiavel, and I was the comic Machiavel. But we still were Machiavels, and and we could talk in innuendos and both understand each other. And we liked what we did. We we came to the set on Monday, and we started to rehearse it in, in that six to eight minute period. And the director, James Conway said, if that's not funny, this is supposed to be a funny scene. He had been told by the writers it was a funny scene. And we said, uh, we don't think it is a funny scene. And he said, well, 
that those are my marching orders. That's what I have to shoot. And this was the only time in seven years that I did this. I said, I don't want to do it that way. I <laughs> want to do it the way Andy and I rehearsed it. They brought Ira down from the writer's room. Uh, he asked what the problem was. We explained the problem. He asked me first, could I do it comically? Uh, he asked both of us, Andy and I. And we said, yes, we're good actors. Yes, we take direction. We can do that. And we did it. And then he said, so show me what it is that you want to do. And we did it the way we wanted to do it. He thought about it for less than 30 seconds. He turned to James Conway and said, shoot it the way Armin and Andy want to do it. And I, I can tell, Chris, from the way you're shaking your head, that you know, as many fans of the show know, that's perhaps one of the most memorable scenes uh, in the seven mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. is the oh, it's scene. classic. Yes. It's, it's great. It's that's the only time I ever did that. Um, only because I was quite sure that there was more to the material than the writers thought. Yeah, because I find that amazing because it's not meant to be a, like a flat out comedy scene. It's like a, it's amusing, but it's not meant to be. So I just I can't imagine what like the what's the comedic version like. It's like, whoa, I'm, I'm not yeah. quite uh, sure. I mean, we did it. I'm not sure we did it well, but we did it. Um, and uh, it, it, you know, posterity has said that we were right. So. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. What was your experience on on Buffy at all? Like how similar, dissimilar? Totally other than different. The, different the worlds. Lack of different, different, yeah. different worlds. Altogether different. Um, I'm not sure if the DLP dictum was true on Buffy. I'm not quite sure. Um, on Deep Space Nine, I was working with seasoned actors of a certain age, not better, not by any means better. But but older, mm -hmm. whereas on Buffy, for the most part, I was dealing with younger actors who had vim and vigor and lots of energy and and uh, 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 were always cutting each other up uh, in a humorous way. <laughs> um, and important to point uh, out on uh, Buffy, right, you know. right, right. <laughs> yeah, on Buffy, yes, uh, yes. And, and on Buffy, uh, characters totally different. Um, Snyder mm -hmm. is a pain in the ass, and uh, and and not a people person. Quark is definitely a people person, um, and and likes to have a good time. Um, also, the politics were different in the sense mm -hmm. that I was a series regular on Deep Space Nine, which gave me a certain amount of power, which I think I rarely used, except for this mm -hmm. one time I just told you about. And Buffy, I was a guest star. I was a recurring guest star, but mm -hmm. I was a guest star and therefore didn't have the power, couldn't rehearse uh, mm -hmm. the way I did on, on Star Trek. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and <laughs> thankfully didn't have to wear prosthetic makeup. So that was good. <laughs> um, so it, it, and the nice thing, and I, I can only uh, make the analogy between the theater and what I was doing mm -hmm. because in the latter years of, of Deep Space Nine and some of the first years of Buffy, um, because I was doing both of them nearly every week, I would do both shows nearly every week. Um, it rejuvenated my spirits about going back to both. So, and, and the analogy I'm making is when an actor does repertory theater on stage, He's excited about doing Hamlet one night, 
because the night before he did Romeo. Um, and it makes Hamlet that much more exciting because he's not doing the same lines, the same performance night yeah, after see. night for eight, yeah. eight performances mm-hmm. a week. Mm-hmm. It, it mixes it up a little and it's very exciting. And in fact, I'm probably way out of line here, but in the last year of Deep Space Nine, I think the actors getting a little tired of playing the same characters mm-hmm. over and over again. Mm-hmm. Right. I wasn't because I was doing Buffy and because I was regenerated by the fact I was doing repertory theater. Yeah, very interesting. It's um, it says here in Wikipedia of all the great, the always true, never wrong, always, always, always reliable. That's what I'm yeah. confirming. <laughs> Wikipedia. It says here that your favorite Deep Space Nine episode that you did was Little Green Men. No, it's wrong. That's interesting. Okay. No, my favorite is what. There's not even a question in my mind. Yeah. Uh, my favorite episode is Far Beyond the Stars. Okay. Yes, all right. That's so yeah. good. Uh, it's an incredible episode. It's not only good Star Trek, it's great TV. It's it's yes. just phenomenal writing, phenomenally directed by Avery Brooks, well acted by all the actors. Uh, it's a great story. It broke every convention. It, it, I mean, for those of you who are not familiar with that episode, it's we spent six years, you know, being in space, uh, playing these characters. And in, in this one episode, for the most part, we all, you turn on the show and everybody is in a different character, mm-hmm. different, not space creatures, not in outer space in America in the fifties dealing with racism. It's a brilliant, brilliant episode. So that's why it, it's not even a question in my mind. It was a very powerful episode for all of us. It, it was enormously powerful for Avery Brooks. Yeah. Um, we did our best for Avery. We did our best because we wanted, we knew how important this episode was. And it also gave us the opportunity to show the audience we could do different characters. You know, mm-hmm. I, I even had this discussion with Avery. Uh, he came up to me and said, you need, my characters in that episode is Herb. It's not Quark. His mm-hmm. name is Herb. And um, he said, can you play Herb a little like Quark? And I said, Avery, Herb isn't Quark. There's no reason why they should be the same. If anything, Herb is based on a, a true-to-life science fiction writer whose name I should know and I've just forgotten. Um, and if anything, I should play it like that. And um, and he backed down and said, yes, play it the way you want to play it. Mm. Uh, so he gave us the opportunity to play characters that the audience were not was not familiar with. And uh, I... You know, Aaron, for instance, who was a lovable Ferengi on on Deep Space Nine, was a hateful sort of creature, a, a paperboy, I think it was, mm-hmm. uh, on on Far Beyond the Stars. It, it it got it gave us all an opportunity to show us what we could show the audience what we could do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was beautiful, and and I have to say too, as we kind of wrap this up tonight, um, for us, Chris and I, Deep Space Nine is our favorite series right chris and i'm still still saying that um yeah it, it's been hard because ds9 is the one i go back to the most tng yeah, was yeah. always my first mm-hmm. but the more mm-hmm. i watch ds9 the more i'm like you know what it's it's my favorite and what i love about it is armin i hope you're enjoying this too and are, i'm sure you're aware of it in meeting so many fans i'm sure throughout the years is is d space nine is enjoying a more younger fans are coming to it and seeing it for the first time and going, Oh my gosh, this is really good. 
Um, and that to me is really exciting as a Star Trek fan to see Deep Space Nine really achieving, I think, the favor of the fans and the appreciation of the fans that unfortunately it didn't enjoy necessarily originally like Next Gen uh, did. And so for me as a Deep Space Nine fan, it's just it's really thrilling to see that. Well, thank you for that, Brian. Uh, it, it is exponentially even more enjoyable to me because I've waited a long time. We've all waited yeah. a long time. Certainly when we were doing it, as I told you before, there were very few people watching, you and two others. <laughs> um, and, and we knew that. And, and, uh, and one of the great things that I think the reason is people are enjoying it more is that Ira began to write long-form TV before it was ever popular. Mm -hmm. y y the episode didn't end after 48 minutes. It, it went on for several mm -hmm. episodes. And now mm -hmm. all TV is like that. Mm -hmm. and so especially if you're watching it and streaming, you don't have to wait a week to find out what happens on that particular subject. You, you can see it two, three episodes in one night. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, and And because we weren't talking about fixing other worlds, we were talking about how to fix ourselves. Yes. Uh, yeah. About personal problems. I think that's why it holds up because humanity, certainly something Shakespeare teaches as well, humanity doesn't change that much. Mm -hmm. uh, surroundings change, attitudes may change, but basic human nature has always stayed the same. And that's what makes our show interesting because it is about basic human needs, wants, desires, and, and uh, uh, reactions to things. Yeah. Well, thank you, Armin, for being so gracious to spend this time with us. It's been an absolute pleasure for us to talk with you today. And, and from day one of starting our podcast, this is the truth. You have been on our wish list to talk yeah. to uh, mm -hmm. for the last year. Mm -hmm. like to give a special thank you. and, and two, years. Two, years. two years. No two way. Years. We're having so much fun. I lost track. Yeah. Of, I lost track of the time. Thanks to Mr. Ian Spelling for helping us make this happen. We appreciate your kindness and support for our podcast, mm -hmm. sir. Remember to visit us at trekgeeks.com. Also, be sure to like, share, write a review of our podcast as that helps us get in front of more people who might find us enjoyable and entertaining to listen to as well. We'll have all the links in our podcast notes so you can connect and learn more about all the things Armin is passionate about and involved in, especially uh, the fanfaresignature.com link. Make sure you click that and order some amazing artwork and autographs. Click those links. Until next time, make friends, not war. And that often means that we should put the needs of others ahead of our own. Make sure your neighbors are good. Make sure to spend plenty of time with your kids and eat lots of tube grubs. They're full of fiber, I hear. Also, read more Shakespeare. Until next time, take care, everybody. Hey, guys, this is Brian again. While we recorded this episode just over a week ago, in that time, SAG-AFTRA has ratified their contract. That's right. Congratulations to the dedicated industry professionals who make our entertainment possible. The Big Sci-Fi Podcast appreciates your sacrifices and commitment to earning a fair living while delivering fantastic entertainment to society. Also, we forgot to mention that we're going to be at Star Trek Long Island in May with Armin. That's right. Armin Shimmerman is going to be one of the special guests at Long Island. We cannot wait to see him again, to hang out a little bit, to talk to him. And we hope that you'll sign up to join all of us at Trek Long Island this May. Until next time, live long and prosper.